Hello, my rebels. Today, I compare the state of affairs of two conservative parties in North America, the Conservative Party of Canada, which does not hold the Prime Minister's office or the House of Commons or the Senate, and the Republican Party of America, which does not hold the White House or the House of Representatives or the Senate. And yet one party, if the election were held again today, would do just as poorly as last time, if not worse. And the other party, the Americans, is set for the largest midterm victory in 40 years, if polls are accurate. Why? And how can we get some of that up here? Well, I'll give you my thoughts. That's next. First, though, do me a kind favor. Please go to Rebel News Plus. Just take a minute. Go to rebelnewsplus.com and click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month and you get the video version of this podcast. You also get weekly podcasts from Sheila Gunn-Reed, David Menzies, Andrew Chapados. That's basically all the visual elements that we add, the charts, the graphs, for example, today, I show you a chart of a U.S. poll. But also the eight bucks a month, it's half the price of Netflix, but it really sustains us and helps us pay our bills here so we don't have to take any of that government money, which we never want to do. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight, a tale of two conservative parties. One's a winner, one's a loser. It's November 18th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon yeah. consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Yesterday, we talked about Senator Denise Banners and her petition to have an early leadership review of Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the Conservative Party who lost the last election. He lost votes and he lost seats. And what's the most frustrating to me is that he did so while throwing out every conservative policy he had campaigned on in the leadership contest just a few months earlier. He literally signed a written promise not to raise taxes, including the carbon tax. Then he proposed a carbon tax, but thinks that by calling it a levy instead of a tax, we won't notice? Yeah, no. You, you know, if you literally type the word levy into any online dictionary, they give you the definition, a tax. He also said he'd defund the CBC. That was a lie. He abandoned it after he won the leadership. He said he'd fight against cancel culture. That's what he said when he was running for leader. But in fact, he's canceled more people than any other politician in Canada, except Justin Trudeau. So my point is at least if Aaron O'Toole had lost while actually campaigning valiantly as a conservative, at least we'd have some measure of how popular or successful conservative ideas are in Canada, but he didn't do that. In fact, I think he's muddied the waters about what the word conservative even means anymore, and he certainly proved that he'd say anything or do anything for momentary advantage. He's got no policy. I think he burnt his personal character. Not only did he lose, but I don't think he's going to win next time. I think the cake is baked. <laughs> Look at this. It's a tweet from CP24. O'Toole warns more expulsions in store for any MP who challenges his leadership. 
the beatings will continue until morale improves. I don't think that usually works. See, the thing is, in our system in Canada, you win the right to be prime minister by having the most MPs. So promising to throw out any MPs from your caucus who aren't 100% obedient to you, now I'm sure that is scary uh, for some MPs. I mean, you work for a guy like that, he could end your political career, uh, especially when he says you must absolutely support his policy about faces. You gotta support him in the flip and the flop, and if you're not, you'll be fired. I mean, seriously, imagine being a cowardly Alberta conservative MP and agreeing to simply parrot his pro-carbon tax line and just swallowing it. You've opposed the carbon tax for a generation. You ran and won on that platform under Stephen Harper. <laughs> Aaron O'Toole himself did as a cabinet member under Harper. But now Aaron O'Toole thinks in some weird 3D chess game that he's going to win election by being pro-carbon tax. But then he put that question to the party at their policy conference, and they voted against it. They voted against the carbon tax, and he simply said he didn't care. He didn't care. He was going to ignore them. I mean, imagine calling that man your great leader and being obedient to him and just saying how much you love him in the carbon tax. Look, I am not calling for a civil war in the Conservative Party, but when a leader loses an election, you have a gut check moment. You check your course. And that's not asking just the terrified member of his own, members of his own caucus if they will do some compelled, showy act of loyalty to him. By, by a gut check, I don't mean asking his shadow cabinet if they like him. He just appointed them to that. You ask the owners of the party, namely thousands of party members, which is all Senator Batters is asking for, which is what truly terrifies Aaron O'Toole because he knows he has betrayed them morally, and even if he hasn't, the party only has one job, win an election, and Aaron O'Toole didn't win the election. So that's Canada's so-called conservative party. Of course, the media party, which is an auxiliary of the liberal party, is feasting on this disarray, and I suppose we are too, a little bit, but that's because we want a leadership check if party members support Aaron O'Toole, I mean, I guess that's fine. I won't support him. But uh, if no one else in the party wants to step up, that's fine. Then he has the undisputed heavyweight title in the tiny little conservative party. But if party members know he's a loser who lost and is likely to lose again, um, maybe they want to pull off the bench quickly and get someone new in there. I'm not saying there won't be any pain, but I'm saying get the pain out of the way as early as possible as long a time in advance of the next election as possible, especially before O'Toole continues to smash and expel every principal conservative left in the place, before he deplatforms Leslin Lewis even from caucus, before he abandons whatever conservative values remain. I can't even name what remains. And if he's truly the best the party can come up with, then so be it. That's why I want a leadership review, and I want it early. Now, the CBC just loves to see trauma in the Conservatives, and they like Aaron O'Toole because he's a proven loser, and he is one at a time doing their job for them, getting rid of the true Conservatives, the Derek Sloans, the Leslin Lewises. It, it, they love the cannibalism on the right. So that's that. Look, I haven't seen any new opinion polls out yet, but they probably aren't fresh enough to capture the latest battle, but it is a certainty 
that the conservative party will fall in the, in the polls. I mean, who would support a political party that doesn't support itself, that has to sort out its own business? So, so that's Canada. What a shame. It's tough up here. You know, the House of Commons is run by liberals. The Senate is run by liberals. The media is not just run by liberals, it's funded by liberals. The culture is liberal. Everything is liberal in Canada. It's tough. But how about the United States of America? I mean, the White House is occupied by Democrats. So are both houses of Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate. The media is overwhelmingly liberal. All the big newspapers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, etc. All the TV networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, plus the news networks, CNN, MSNBC. There's just Fox News, which is a sliver of the audience of the big networks, and some websites. And then, of course, there's all of Hollywood, from the old studios to the new ones, Amazon Prime Video, Netflix, all of it's so liberal, so left-wing. That's where the Obamas are making their money now. I mean, they're explicitly pro-Democrat. And yet, while Canada's conservatives appear doomed, and if an election were held again today, they surely would do no better than they did in October. Look at this from the United States. Look at this. This is a poll from the Washington Post. That's, that's owned by Amazon, it's owned by Jeff Bezos, it's pro-Democrat. So this is not some right-wing fantasy poll. This is the most establishment liberal newspaper in America commissioning this poll. And take a look at it, would you? It's a very simple headline. Economic discontent, criticisms of Biden lift the GOP, that's the Republicans, to a record early advantage, record. Republican congressional candidates hold their largest lead in midterm election vote preferences in ABC News, Washington Post polls dating back 40 years, underscoring profound challenges for Democrats hoping to retain their slim majorities in Congress next year. While a year is a lifetime in politics, the Democratic Party's difficulties are deep. They include soaring economic discontent, a president who's fallen 12 percentage points, underwater in job approval, and a broad sense that the party is out of touch with the concerns of most Americans. 62% say so. And just look at that graph. Holy cow, 51% for the Republicans. They have never been at that level. Look, look at the chart, going back 40 years. Now I'm talking about what they call the midterm elections there. Um, they haven't been in that level since this chart begins in 1981. This is going to be a once-in-a-generation pendulum swing from the left to the right. That's what this says. Now, I'm not saying nothing could stop it. I mean, vote fraud could stop it, for example. It's not who casts the ballots. It's who counts them. But we just saw a sneak preview of what could really happen in the state of Virginia, where Republicans held the governor's mansion for just four out of the last 20 years. Like, that's a Democrat state. The Democrats were considered a double-digit shoe-in. I think Biden won the state by 10% in 2020. And yet a Republican won, despite media smears that he was a racist. He won against the former chairman of the Democratic Party and all of his fundraising prowess. I think the swing is coming. Part of that is because of the American system. Like I say, every two years, Congress is up for re-election. Every six years, the Senate is, but they're staggered. So every two years, one-third of the Senate is up for grabs. So while Joe Biden himself is not on the ballot next year, the Congress and, and one-third of the Senate are. 
and with them the ability for Biden to get many things done. Now, the president still has great power as the executive. He can appoint people to cabinet. He can appoint judges. He can launch wars. He can conduct mon money policy. He can appease China and have hand Afghanistan to it. He can let China devour Taiwan. He can keep the border with Mexico open. Joe Biden or whoever is really running the show will have enormous power and the power to do terrible things until his very last minute in office. Just look at how they have weaponized the Department of Justice against PTA moms. But the ability to pass so many laws and budgets will be limited by the Republican uh, Party if they're able to take back one or both houses of Congress. And the more radical nominees of Biden can be stalled or blocked too. Um, like this, and, and I show you this because this is amazing and because it shows that the Democrats are so truly out of step with Americans. And this is going to be a splash of cold water in their face when people reject this radicalism in a year. But also, listen, watch this woman I'm going to show you. But realize we have people just as radical as this in Canada. And yet we have no confirmation hearings like the Americans do. So our Stephen Gilbo, for example, currently our environment minister, he used to be the censorship minister. He's a convicted criminal, you know, right? He's a, he's a former Greenpeace radical extremist. He would never uh, be confirmed by the U.S. system, including by many moderate Democrats. You put a convicted criminal up, it just wouldn't pass. But in our system, Trudeau just names him and it's done. Same with our judges. But look at this woman, Biden's nominee to run the banking regulators. She's from the former Soviet Union. Yeah, and it shows. Listen to her talking about abolishing private banks and making it so you can only have a bank account with the government, that is Soviet. Imagine what would it be like if instead of being just a public option for deposit uh, banking, this would be actually the full transition. In other words, there will be no more private uh, bank deposit accounts and all of the deposit accounts will be held directly at the Fed. And there are very interesting implications uh, from that thought experiment, for example, with uh, the much more uh, direct and proactive tools of monetary policy, like helicopter money, which is uh, you know, considered radical, primarily because uh, economists really do not know how to manage the issue of what will happen in the inflationary environment when the central bank needs to contract the supply of money. How is it politically feasible for the central bank to effectively take money away from uh, people's accounts. Holy moly, now I don't know if she will actually make it through their system, <clears throat> but they actually have a system that can stop things like this. And because moderate Democrats are actually a thing, and because Republicans, or at least some of them, will try to block her because she is crazy, but mainly because Republicans, or at least some of them, actually still think of themselves as a party with a conservative identity. Not all Republicans do. Some are rhinos, Republicans in name only, but enough to. I mean, Ted Cruz, Cruz Ron DeSantis, the governor, Rand Paul, the senator, Thomas Massey, the congressman. Uh, there are enough people like that. And even though their party does have its sellouts, like Aaron O'Toole is a sellout, there is not the same absolute discipline over party members that Aaron O'Toole has. So you can't just kick someone out of the Republican Party like you can't kick someone out of the conservative party. I suppose you could kick someone out of your caucus just as weak. Republicans, quote, censured one of their own. But it would be madness to drive someone out of your party when every vote counts, when you got a 50-50 Senate.
I put it to you that one reason the Republicans are doing so well is because Joe Biden and the squad, like the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes, and the bank Caesars, who we just saw, and the radicals and the Democrats, they're turning people off. I mean, the world is getting worse and Americans can sense it. The pandemic is not over. Foreign affairs are a shambles, inflation is rampant, gasoline is skyrocketing in the pumps. Same thing in Canada on all fronts though, except down in America, Republicans offer an alternative to it, at least some do. Up here, what alternative has Aaron O'Toole offered on anything? Okay, I got it. He's offering a carbon levy instead of a carbon tax. Tell me the difference on any important subject between O'Toole and Trudeau. I wish just once a conservative would run as a conservative, not even as a radical, as a sensible, calm, Reagan conservative, just to try it. Don't do what the CBC tells you to do. Ron DeSantis doesn't do what CNN tells him to do. Just be yourself, just be conservative. Just give it a shot. At least if you lose that way, you know you tried. We don't actually know what would have happened if a true conservative had run in the last election. Because none did. Stay with us for more. Mate. Good to see you. I'm, uh, I'm happy to see someone here that police probably uh, like less than me. <laughs> Welcome to Melbourne. Yeah, it's good to be here. I got down at the uh, 7 o'clock flight out of Sydney. I arrived in Melbourne this morning. The rain was coming down vertical. The pilot said it's about 9 degrees outside. Global warming. It's nice and cold here today. I'm glad I bought a warm jacket, they told me. So how did you feel about the crowd today? Oh, look, it's just incredible. I can't... From the stage, I can't see the back of the crowd to the left, to the right, or in front of me. There must be tens of thousands of people here. You'll probably hear on the ABC tonight, if they report it, there was 100 people and two dogs. <laughs> are, are we the two dogs? That's right. <laughs> the rest of the world, their eyes are on Melbourne at the moment. What is your message to them? Look, the message has been, people are not going to put up with this bullshit anymore. People, this is the most locked down city in the world. It's the most depressed city in the world. But the science shows there is no cause for this. Now, people are going to stand up for their rights. Remember, you know, there's places like Florida, places like Texas, that these mandates have been thrown out and made illegal. We've got to end this discrimination. We've got to protect the kids. And really, well, I think we need a complete change of the political scene. Both the major political parties have showed they can't be trusted. How could you give someone like Daniel Andrews more power after what he's done? Well, that was our own Avi Yamini at an incredible protest outside the state of Victoria's legislature in the city of Melbourne. As you may have heard, even though we're on the opposite side of the world here, the socialist premier of the state of Victoria was passing or trying to pass a bill to give him permanent emergency powers akin to an authoritarian dictator. It may sound shocking to you, but it shouldn't be surprising. This is the same premier who traveled to China and publicly signed a treaty with the Communist Party of China, although he kept the terms of the treaty secret from Australians. It had to be set aside by the prime minister as beyond the power of a state um, premier, just an absolute incredible, incredible socialist activist premier. Well, these protests outside the legislature got bigger 
and bigger and they never went away and they stayed overnight and opposition grew. So how did it end? Joining us now via Skype from Melbourne, Australia is our friend and chief Australia correspondent, Avi Amini. Avi, great to see you. You were out there every day amongst the protesters. Is it over? Did it end? What happened? No, it's certainly not over yet. Um, it was supposed to be voted on yesterday. Well, as long as the government, as long as Andrews had the numbers, he was urgently going to push it through. That's what they were saying. They were telling the world, they were telling Victorians that this is such an important piece of legislation and it must pass now. But um, when one of his former ministers has crossed the floor, and uh, shown his vaccination papers. He hasn't he hasn't voted in a while. When he said, "I am actually going to oppose it," suddenly uh, the Andrews government and what I'm calling their three stooges, the far left wing alliance um, of the Greens, Animal Justice, and Fiona Patton, they uh, they all voted to now delay this urgent vote. Uh, obviously, they're trying to scramble and get the numbers. Uh, I I can't tell you what's going to happen. You know, it's, it's certainly not going to pass the way they expected and wanted it to pass, which is absolute power to the Premier. It is some of the scariest legislation um, I've ever seen and as a Victorian. And as an enemy of the state, I was uh, slightly fearful of it. So uh, it's, it's certainly we're in a much better position. It would have been great for it to be voted on yesterday and to to kill that bill right there dead in its tracks. Uh, but the bill, the, the vote could happen today or there's one more week of uh, Parliament sitting before the end of the year, which makes this so much more interesting because if he doesn't get that bill passed, there's no way they're going to give him another extension on the state of emergency, which then means on December 16, the government loses the ability, loses all power to enforce any COVID restrictions or any rules, any mandates. How wow. that To me, that sounds like poetic justice if that happens. Well, I tell you, the stakes couldn't be higher. So what I, I think I'm gathering from those parliamentary intrigues is that it was set to pass with a coalition of Dan Andrews and these three left-wing, I think they're called crossbenchers down there, like sort of independents. But one guy who used to be an ally of Dan Andrews, one politician made the difference and said, I'm not going to support it. So the math was off. And so they didn't force the issue and they backed off. Did I get that right? One man, a most unlikely man, uh, well, it's, it's no. the most unlikely. It's the most unlikely. But when you really think about it, it was the most likely. Just no one thought about it. I was having this discussion yesterday because what was interesting was the first time I heard this man's name in the conversation were these protesters outside parliament a few days ago. So the only people who thought about it were, were these protesters that have been defamed and called all sorts of names uh, the last few weeks. But uh, none of the mainstream, none of the politicians, none of the people doing crunching the numbers, no one making uh, educated guesses or predictions picked up on the fact that uh, Adam Sonyarek, who has for a while now been at odds with Daniel Andrews. No one thought that he would come in and cross the floor like that.
Hmm. Well, it's very interesting, and I know that some of these names are not familiar to people outside of Australia, but the point is one man made a difference. It's, it's very historic in its feeling. It's very biblical almost. Uh, and, and as you point out, it's not dead yet, although your petition, killthebill.com.au, has well over 100,000 signatures. That's large anywhere, but for a country the size of Australia, about 25 million folks, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's got to be one of the largest petitions in recent history. Well, I think uh, even even more so that the fact that this is not an Australian issue, this is a Victorian, I think it's a worldwide issue, but it is a Victorian petition. So you're talking about, I don't know, 6 million people. Right. It is huge. Right. And, um, you know, whether we actually have to go and deliver it to the governor um, now I'm so much more confident knowing we have over 100,000 signatures. But even if it, if the bill does die, uh, I think it's important for every single one of those 100,000 people plus who signed it to know that they changed the conversation because everywhere I've been, many of the points that we bring up in that petition for the very first time have become now mainstream talking points. Yeah when arguing about it. So I'm I'm really proud about what we did and each and every person that helped um, bring that to that level. So it's not just the number of people who signed it, it's the education of the, pro the process of the petition spread the news about it. Give our people just one or two points about what is in this bill that was of such biblical proportions that caused this uh, uh, one man to come back and cast his, or, and threaten to cast his vote against us. Give us just one or two details. Uh, I've, I've said the word like a permanent authoritarian powers. Give us an example. I'll give you an example. But essentially, the Premier himself can declare a pandemic at his own will. Um, there doesn't even have to be a disease. Now, with that, he ultimately holds all the power. They try to pretend that there's oversights by committees that, um, that he chooses. So obviously, if he doesn't like what the committee says, he just has to bring somebody else in. It also says in there... And this was one of the sweeteners that he was trying to um, produce as transparency. He's saying, from now on, we will we will publish the health advice because until now they re they've refused to do so. And, and to be our lawsuit in in the Supreme Court was one of the first was the first and last time that we've actually put up any of their um, health advisors on the stand to give testimony about what the advice was. But aside from that, they've never published any health advice that justifies the most, the longest, most brutal lockdown in the world. He says, we're gonna publish it, but it doesn't say that he has to, it changes and he can say, no problem, I publish it. But I, I as the man holding all the power um, that can decide anything, it has the final say. And the final say included Going, jailing people for up to two years for breaching health orders. So, at that, at, and, and, and that, it is, it is so broad that really, if, if, if it was to be enacted, he would essentially have the power of targeting, and, and part of that bill was targeting people on political, on their political views. So, 
The Premier of Victoria, who I know for certain doesn't appreciate the work we do at Rebel News, would be able to target me because of his perceived views of, of what I stand for and um, essentially jail without trial or due process and there was no real um, right to judicial review. Huh. It meant There's that so if you wanted to have to... that reviewed, it had to be reviewed another bureaucrat that he chooses. It was outrageous. And this was the first time in a long time where all sides of politics and you had all the law institutes and the majority of the legal fraternity standing up. And, and if anyone knows anything about the legal fraternity here in Victoria, they're quite um, liberal. They're quite uh, um, uh, um they're allies of the Labor government usually. And they came out pretty strong about this because even they could see that this was nothing to do with health. This was an attack on our civil liberties. He he claimed it was about future pandemics, but I promise you, mm -hmm. if that piece of legislation had passed tomorrow, today, Mr. Andrews would have declared that pandemic. Wow. You know, it's there's so much in there, and, and I'm just chuckling. Um, I don't know why they're not publishing their health advice now. That's supposed to be some sort of gift or something they might do. I, it just boggles the mind that they're not publishing it now. But then again, I realize that in Canada, we don't have any disclosure of that either. We're all living in authoritarian times. Avi, it's great to see you again and have you on the program. We watch your videos and we're delighted by your reporting. I truly believe that Australia, and in particular the city of Melbourne and the state of Victoria, are the center of the bullseye for the, the globalist authoritarian attack that's using the pandemic opportunistically to seize power. And I really, really believe that your reporting, more than anyone else in Australia, is shining a light of scrutiny on it. And I think you've really made a difference. I think Australians believe that too, the way they're responding to you. So keep up the great work and thanks for being such a important part of the team. Thanks, thanks again, Ezra. Thanks for everything. And there you have it, Avi Yamini, Chief Australia Correspondent, coming to us from Melbourne. Stay with us, more ahead. Hey, welcome back, your viewer feedback. Jerome Hawk says, I suspended my meager monthly donations to the Conservative Party many months ago. I await the cleanup of the mess they're currently in. The fundraisers are not pleased with me. Tough. Yeah, you know, I, th I think it's a kind of false advertising for the conservative. I get conservative party fundraising emails. I don't understand why. I literally have not been a party member in more than 10 years. I have not given them a donation in more than 10 years, but they still try and get money from me, and that's fine. I like to read them, um, but I think they're false advertising. They're very rebel in their style. They're very action-oriented. They're well-written and sharp. I, I wish those email writers, those fundraisers for the Conservative Party were actually MPs because they pretend to be rock-ribbed, red-blooded conservatives when they email or phone you. Um, they don't actually keep their promise. They say they're against cancel culture. They say they're against the CBC and the media party. They say they're against high taxes, but they're not against any of those things. I think giving money to the Conservative Party of Canada, um, I mean, listen, if it makes you feel better, do it, but I don't think you should do it. I think you're rewarding a wolf in sheep's clothing. I think they are no different than the Liberals. 
Bruce Atchison says, remember the end of Animal Farm. The liberals and conservatives look too much alike. We peer through the window, but we can't tell if Trudeau is O'Toole and O'Toole is Trudeau. Those glorious promises of the 2019 leadership debate are now painful lies. That's exactly, that's a great uh, analogy. I love that book, Animal Farm. And um, what's incredible is how quickly uh, O'Toole just did a 180 degree change on everything. He's a liar, I'm sorry, it's just a liar. I mean, I know every politician has to lie at least a little bit, but don't lie about everything and don't lie to your base and then expect them to support you. He's terrified of confronting his base. That's all Denise Batters wants is for him to have a, an accountability moment. He doesn't want that. Kirk Woken says, I told the conservative party this time I wasn't supporting them because I wanted to vote, vote for a conservative. Isn't that the truth? Look, I don't know if there's anyone waiting in the wings. I don't know why Pierre Polyev hasn't thrown his hat in. I thought he would last time. I hope he does. There may be other people in the party. Maybe Leslie Lewis. I don't know. Obviously, O'Toole regards her as a rival, given that he didn't appoint her to shadow cabinet. I, I really do think he will fire her one day. But uh, listen, if Aaron O'Toole is truly the best the Canadian conservative movement has to offer, a country of 38 million people, if he's the best the conservative party has, so be it. But we won't actually know unless we ask the members, will we? Well, that's our show for today. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom. And let me leave you with a video by Adam Sos of our Calgary team about that city's ridiculous climate emergency, climate emergency, the first order of business declared by the new mayor. Oh, by the way, in the middle of a snowfall. Here's Adam. Take a look. Welcome to Alberta, strong and free. Home of big clear skies with lush forests that cascade through the foothills of rising Rocky Mountains. Nature and wilderness as far as the eye can see. Peppered by glacial lakes and crystal clear water. vibrant modern cities with big town amenities and a small town feel. The city of Calgary sits nestled. Calgary City Council has declared a climate emergency. People from around the world come to Alberta and come to Calgary because it is beautiful and it is clean. We are not facing a climate emergency plain and simple. If you agree, Go to noclimateemergency.com now, sign our petition, and click a link to send GOT Gondek a message. Adam Sos here for Rebel News. And Calgary, as you've heard, is in apparently a state of climate emergency, whatever that may mean. City councillors voted 13 to 2 in favour of declaring a state of emergency in this city. During debates, there was some minor contention over the use of of the word emergency and what that means. But city council wasn't about to let facts and definitions get in the way of jumping on board this climate hysteria. Listen, we have been going through cycles of emergency because of COVID-19 for the past two years. Now they've added yet another element of crises and emergencies for us to be panicked over and to live in fear of. Your new city council will make a commitment to climate action because we can and we must.
Sadly, it isn't as though Gioti Gondek is doing this to Calgarians. She campaigned on a platform of one day declaring a climate emergency in the city. Sadly, we are doing this to ourselves, or at least our fellow voters are doing it to us. It's come to the point where they have adopted the climate hysteria so integrally that they are actually comforted by authorities declaring a state of emergency. But the word emergency caused concern for a number of councillors, including Sonia Sharp, who said the word is too charged, but the word was not changed. In our first NoClimateEmergency.com video, we talked about how the media in Hollywood are complicit in exasperating fears surrounding climate change. We also talked about how these policies do very little to help the environment, but do a lot to help politicians in patting themselves on the back, and a lot to help them encourage further increased taxes, all in the name of the environment. We have also seen the economic and mental health impacts caused by these types of policies and the perpetual state of fear that people are living in. Well, Ian, I spoke with the Calgary Construction Association, and they say that they want to be a part of Calgary's climate-conscious future, as construction and buildings are responsible for 60% of the city's carbon footprint. And he also says that Calgary has the potential to be a climate leader in sustainable construction. It says there needs to be a two-pronged approach to build in a way that doesn't contribute to climate change. One, renovate and improve existing and aging buildings to make them more efficient. The other is to make sure that any new construction uses sustainable materials and energy-efficient design. Despite all of these factors, Jyoti and company are so eager to spearhead their new great leap forward that Despite a lack of sufficient technology and resources, they want us transitioning off of fossil fuels. The reality is, is that we are not ready to do that yet, and the world is going to continue to need oil. Importing oil from overseas OPEC oil is not good for the environment, and it's certainly not good for our economy. So until we are ready to embrace these technologies, and until these technologies are in fact viable and can compete, on the open market, they in reality simply will not work. From the initial five founder members, today OPEC has grown to include 13 sovereign nations on three continents. Together, these countries hold 80% of the world's proven oil reserves and provide around 40% of global crude oil production. You know, in China, Mao Zedong also worked towards a great leap forward. I think we all know how that went, though maybe some of these people don't. When we don't learn from history, it is doomed to repeat itself. Under Mao Zedong, with their great leap forward, they attempted over the course of five years to rapidly industrialize a country that had inadequate technology and whose ways of life were not yet compatible with industrialization. The consequence of that policy was that millions of people died. Listen, I am hopeful that our politicians aren't quite so dramatic as Mao Zedong. I'm hoping they don't shut off the oil and count on sunless solar panels and frozen over wind turbines to get us through the winter. But if history has taught us anything, hoping on politicians is not good policy. We must work together to ensure it is no longer free to pollute anywhere in the world. Simply put, we cannot transition to technology that does not yet exist, or at least doesn't exist on a level that can keep us going through Canadian winters. Furthermore, unethical oil does nothing to help the environment 
and nothing to help Canadians. We need politicians who are actually willing to stand up to this climate hysteria, not simply those who go along to make new friends by agreeing to carbon taxes and Paris Accords. We need people who will stand up in principle. And I'm going to take it a step further. We need politicians who, instead of signing up for these meaningless symbolic gestures, get this, do something to actually help the environment. I want to thank you all for tuning in. For Rebel News, I'm Adam Sos. Go to noclimateemergency.com. There you will be able to click a button and send an email directly to Gioti Gondek. You'll also be able to sign our petition saying that there is no climate emergency in Calgary. Thank you.